Uh, on our first Sunday, we started in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we've just been going straight through it. And now we're in Mark chapter 12, so we're going to read uh, that passage, and we're going to discuss it and, and sort of dig into it and see what it says. But before we do, let's just say a quick word of prayer, okay? Father, thanks so much for the opportunity for us all to be here together, to learn together, to grow together, to raise our voices and sing together, uh, to learn from your scripture, to read your scripture and learn from it, and to uh, apply it to our lives as we develop and grow and we, and we accomplish the mission that you have, um, that you have set us out to do. Uh, you've, you've asked us, Lord, to serve others, and that's what we're here to do, to grow and strengthen our own spiritual relationship with you, develop our relationships with others, uh, God, and ultimately to grow strong so we can help others and, and, and be Christ to our world. Thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> we're calling this, uh, this sermon The Great Disguise. Um, this guy is uh, it's a statue of Odysseus. If you've ever read or remember back in school, a Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. It's about, uh, it's about a man who goes on a great odyssey. Uh, he goes on a great odyssey. He conquers uh, the enemies in the Trojan War. It's a 10-year war. Um, and if you remember back from your history or literature or something, they, they build the Trojan horse and they move it into the city and they all come out and they prevail. Um, but the odyssey is, is, is directed at uh, Odysseus's attempt to get back to Ithaca. He's the king of Ithaca. He's the king of this kingdom. He's been gone from the kingdom for several years. And while he's gone in this poem, while he's gone, a number of suitors come and they try to woo his wife, kill his son and take over his kingdom. So the story of the Odyssey is Odysseus's attempt to get back to his kingdom and set things right. And in this adventure, one of, I'll only highlight a few of the things that happened because the book is about this big. Um, he, he, one of the things that he encounters, he, he lands on an island, it gets shipwrecked on an island, and encounters a massive cyclops. And this cyclops hides him and, and, and puts him, captures him and his men, puts him in a cave. They're ultimately able to escape. They blind the cyclops. They ride out under the bellies of the sheep. You, you remember this? It's, it's very strange. They ride out, uh, hiding themselves under the belly of the sheep. They get back in the boat. They move along. The next thing they do, they land at another island, and they encounter these giant cannibals. And these giant cannibals want to eat them. And so they escape from the giant cannibals, and they get back in their ship, and they try to go through this narrow pass. And on one side of the pass is a whirlpool that can sink their ship. And on the other side of the pass is a, a six-headed monster. <laughs> and the six-headed monster eats some of the guys. And it's, it's a very, very adventure-filled story. Um, they get through another shipwreck. Long story short, Odysseus is the only one of his men that survives. He gets washed up on the shores of Ithaca, and he needs to go back and take his kingdom back. But in order to do that, he disguises himself as a beggar, a wandering beggar. So the king of the kingdom disguises himself as a beggar and enters his kingdom because he wants to see who's loyal, who's not, who's faithful, who's not, who's looking out for him, who's not, who's trying to woo his wife, who's not, who's trying to kill his son. And he goes in and he, it's a, it's a great, it's a great story where he goes in and um, some of his faithful servants figure out who he is. 
and, they, and, and he goes into the kingdom, and he, un, he gets the lay of the land, and he figures out who's who, and then he reveals himself as king and sets things right. He takes out the people that have been trying to destroy his kingdom and kill his son. He, he elevates the people that have been faithful and loyal to, to his kingdom, and he, and he gets everything right, but he has to do it by disguising himself so that he can see what's happening in his kingdom. It's a great, it's a great little story, and it, I thought of it... Um, because of the nature of the passage that we're talking about today, there's a lot of disguise in the story that we're talking about uh, in the passage that we're reading today. There's evil disguised as good. There is a treasure that's disguised as a penny. There is power disguised as weakness. There's victory disguised as defeat. And ultimately, in the passage that we're going to read today, there is a king That is disguised as a servant. So let's jump into Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're starting with verse 35. And and as Jesus taught in the temple. He said. And then he quotes. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. The Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, this is a very slightly confusing passage because Jesus is quoting David, who's quoting the Lord. So we've got three quotes. Okay, so what is this passage talking about? We'll just, we'll just dig into this before we move on to the next part. Jesus is quoting Psalm chapter 110. Okay, Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted passages in the entire New Testament. Psalm 110 is a, is a psalm of David from the Old Testament, and it's a messianic psalm. It, 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 it uh, professes uh, that there will be a Messiah, and it discusses what he's going to be like. And the beginning of the psalm says this, and this is what, this is what Jesus is quoting. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's he talking about here? The Lord, okay, whenever in your Bible you see the Lord in the Old Testament capitalized, L-O-R-D, if you ever see it capitalized where all the letters are capitalized, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, okay? Yahweh. Yahweh is the name that was given at the burning bush when Moses stepped, if you remember from your, your Bible stories, Moses came up to the burning bush And he heard a voice and he said, who are you? That's when God revealed himself as Yahweh, the God. And it basically means I am that I am. I am it. I'm the one. Uh, So whenever you see in your Bible, in the Old Testament, all caps for Lord, it means Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord. Okay, now this one is not capitalized. And in some of the translations, not even the L is capitalized. But whenever you see Lord in not caps, (laughs) <laughs> We're getting a, a Hebrew lesson here. Sorry, uh, but we'll, we'll be cool. So uh, it, it says whenever you see it when, it, when it's not capitalized, the word is some variation of this word Adonai. And it could be A-D-O-N-I or A-D-O-N or A-D-H-O-N-A-I, some variation of that word. And what that means, sometimes that word is used to describe God. Sometimes that word is just used to describe a, a, a sovereign a human Lord, okay, a king of some kind or a powerful figure or a great person. Okay, 
That's the backdrop. So Jesus is turning to his followers. Remember, he's in the temple. He's been fighting with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And now it's his turn to sort of put his position out there. And he says, why would David call the Messiah Lord? Because the Messiah, remember, is the son of David. Jesus, and, and for, throughout the Old Testament, the, the Messiah was deemed to be the son of David. And Jesus is saying, the Messiah is not just the son of David. David is calling the Messiah Lord. Who does King David bow down to? Who is sovereign over King David? Jesus is saying, the Messiah is not just the son of David. He's the son of God. Jesus is very subtly telling the audience that he is much more than a man that he is something divine, that he is something powerful, and that he is about to release his kingdom. Um, it's, it's really interesting to hear him say it because I, I get the sense that when Jesus is standing there fielding questions from the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians, he just wants to burst open and say, do you know who I am? Has anyone ever seen the show Undercover Boss? Have you ever seen that show? There was a there was an episode where one, like the president of the of, of Kendall Jackson, the winemaker. Did anybody see that episode where he goes out in a truck and he's like delivering boxes of wine? Did you see that? He he's delivering boxes of wine with a guy, you know, one of the drivers, and the driver is doesn't know that he's the president of the company. Doesn't know that the president of the company is sitting in his truck, and the driver is just. He's just using foul language. He's talking about how everybody at this company stinks. He's talking about how, like, there's no teamwork and how he's the greatest guy and everybody else is lousy. He talks about how one of the uh, distributors or one of the customers he almost gets in a fight with, like literally a fist fight. And he's revealing all of this to the president of the company, not knowing who he is because the guy's undercover. And at one point, (laughs) the boss says, can you excuse me for one second? Gets out of the truck and is visibly shaken. He wants to fire this guy so badly because this guy is like just the worst employee and has no idea that he's disclosing all of his flaws and his foibles to the president of the company. I get that image when I see Jesus standing there with these Sadducees and these Pharisees and people that are drilling him with these questions. And he wants to go, do you have any idea who I am? Do you have any idea that I am the Lord? Do you have any idea that I'm the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God? Do you have any idea? Um, and of course they don't. Um, when we let Christ be the sovereign Lord of our life. When we bow down to him, when he becomes the the focus of our life, this is what happens. All of the other little lords, all of the other little idols, all of the other little gods in our lives, we don't have to worship them anymore. We don't have to be slaves to them anymore. We don't have to be slaves to the gods of addiction and sin and hopelessness and despair and destructive thoughts and bad behavior and haunting disappointments and past failures. We don't have to bow down to these little demigods in our life when we put Christ as the king of our life, when we truly recognize who he is. I love that. And and there's another part of that, too, because 
he, ca- he calls us as a, he's a, he's a king, but he disguises himself as a servant. And he asks us to do the same thing. We are children of the king. As the song says, we have royal blood flowing through our veins. But he doesn't want us to walk around as if we're, as if we're above everyone. He wants us to disguise ourselves as servants and to serve others, to be servants of, of the king. In the, one of your uh, bulletin quotes, Mother Teresa is quoted as saying that essentially the, the, the poor and the disenfranchised in India and those without food and without clothes and without places to stay and without any hope or, whatever, or, or, or anything else, they are Jesus in disguise. She serves them because, remember, he says, inasmuch as you have done unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Okay, so, so basically he's, he's expressing his sovereignty. He's expressing his authority in this first passage. Then we go to verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. When he's referring to the long robes there, you know, um, they, they, in the first century, they had long prayer shawls with little tassels on it. And when, it, when you would pray, you would put on one of these long shawls. Well, these scribes loved to wear these all the time. It'd be like a college professor walking around in his long robe and in his hat and, the, you know, walking around just to say, hey, by the way, do you, you know who I am, Right. Uh, and the scribes would do this. They would walk around in these long robes. And he says, this is a pretense. He said, these guys are making these long prayers. They're putting on this air of righteousness. They're putting on this show and this display of, of, of righteousness. But really, they are wolves disguised in sheep's clothing. He says, they devour widows' houses and as a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. I think what Jesus is saying is that there is a special circle in hell for any minister who uses the gospel to disenfranchise, harm, hurt, hinder the widows, the poor, the oppressed, the helpless, the feeble-minded. He is not happy about the way these scribes are doing their business. In, in one of Aesop's fables, there's a wolf that decides to come and put on sheep's clothing so that he can get into the sheep pen and, and have a sheep uh, and eat one of the sheep. But what he doesn't, what, he, what, what happens is that the shepherd says, we're going to have mutton tonight. I'll take that sheep. And it's the wolf that's dressed in the sheep's clothes. Um, Jesus is saying, watch out for these guys. Don't beware of someone who puts on too many airs of righteousness. Be careful about them if they want their reward now, if everything they do is a public display of their own greatness. Watch out for them. And then he says uh, in verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins which make a penny. So let me give you just a little context here, okay? Remember, we're in Herod's temple, 
which is this massive temple we talked about a few weeks ago. And then there's the outer court, and then there's this one court called the Court of Women, and you could, uh, and, and both women and men could come into this court. And in this court, they had a treasury. And what they had were these large boxes. And the boxes, boxes were sort of shaped like trumpets. They had a narrow opening at the top, and they had a, a wide opening at the bottom. And this is where people would put in their offerings. And their offerings were used to support the priests and the Levites and the, and the people who ran the temple. And also to help out the widows and the poor. And so that's what the, the boxes were used. Now, in that time, they didn't have paper currency. All right? So when you came in and made your offering, if you were putting in big chunks of gold, you could hear that. Plonk, 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 plonk. And silver. Pling, 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 pling. And you could make it so that everyone would know that you're putting in a massive offering. You could make that happen. And this little widow comes in and it says she put in these two little copper coins, lepta. These two little copper coins that put together make up less than a fraction of a day of a day's wage for a laborer. Just a very small amount. Um, and he says... Uh, in the next verse there, in verse 43, and he called his disciples, he watches her make this, this, this offering, called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is an amazing story. It's a very famous story. Um, ch- little children in Sunday school learn of the They call it the widow's mites. Um, and they learn about this story. Sometimes people will take this story and, and sort of, you know, use it for various, very, various discussions. It, it, the, the, the thing about the scripture is you can take it and you can try to twist it and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Um, Jesus is, is observing this woman's sacrifice because she put in everything she had. Now, let me just tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that everybody should put in all of their money into the offering. Does everybody say, oh, okay, good, right? Because if you do that, you won't be able to pay your rent. Then you'll have to come and move with us. And we love you, but no. Um, But what what he is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that this woman's sacrifice has value. The fact that she is sacrificing, that is where the value is. Jesus is saying that the value of the gift, and this is not just to do with money. It is to do with money, but it has to do with a lot of things, and we'll talk about it. The value of the gift is measured by the sacrifice of the giver. The value of the gift is measured by the sacrifice of the giver. Has anyone ever been guilty of regifting? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, uh, my wife received a gift one time when, when I, I believe it was when she was pregnant with Jameson. Um, and the gift was a kit of plaster. And the plaster and the picture and the, you could see it, it's not been opened. But, but the plaster, what, it's, what it was supposed to be used for, and I hope nobody in here gave this to her because I can't remember who did. But the plaster was to be used to make a form of your belly, and then you would paint on it, okay? Now, to me, I mean, that might be really cool, 
to me, it just was a little, just like a little weird. You know, <laughs> I, I just thought, I don't know if we want a plaster of my wife's belly hanging on the wall. I just don't know her pregnant belly. I just don't know if that's what we want. I say that to say, if you get a box of plaster one Christmas, you will know that you're being regifted a gift that my wife got. I actually got caught regifting one time. A buddy of mine, uh, it was his birthday. I was supposed to go to his party. I was trying to run out the door, and I completely forgot to get him a gift. And I've got a stack of books in my office, you know. And I looked at one of them. I go, you know what? He would actually like that. Kind of took a quick look at it. Wasn't too beat up. Wrapped it up. Took it over there. Went to his house. Had the party. He opens the gift. And as he's looking at it, I'm I like, that's when I'm noticing the yellow pages. That's when I'm noticing that the, the, the spine is kind of cracked. That's when it starts to become obvious that, like, dude, you just grabbed a used book off your bookshelf and gave it to this guy. And I kind of see him noticing it, too, you know. So when he put it down, I actually grabbed it and looked through it to make sure there weren't any notes in it or, like, any, anything that I left in there. Fortunately, there weren't. He was, he was generous enough to never bring it up again, and, and, and so was I. So, um, But we know implicitly that the value of someone's gift is tied to the sacrifice that it made that was required to give the gift. That's why when you're, you know, when somebody takes the time to really make something for you or do something, you go, man, that's a, that's a really great gift. It doesn't really matter the value of it. You know, somebody made us a jar of jam one time and it was a really great gift because I knew that that person had to sit down and I don't know how you can jam or uh, a, a can of uh, strawberry jam. I don't know how you do that, but I know that it takes some time and energy and sacrifice. And so I just really thought, man, that's just a really sweet gift. Um, there's a there's a movie that was from the 20s called Little Annie Rooney. And in the story, this there's this little 12-year-old girl, and her brother is a real rabble-rouser and a troublemaker. And her brother is in, like, a little gang, and they get into these, this fight, and the brother gets hurt, and he needs a blood transfusion. And little Annie rushes to the hospital, and they say, that, you know, at the hospital, they say, uh, you know, you, you have the right type of blood. Would you give blood for this, for your brother? And little Annie says, she thinks about it and she says, okay, okay, I'll do it. So they put her on the table and they start to draw her blood. And as they're drawing her blood, she starts to cry and she looks over at the doctor and she says, how much longer do I have to live? She thinks that by giving blood, she's giving her life for her brother. She's willing. It's a touching story. She's willing to make this sacrifice. And now this story has found its way into chicken soup of the soul. And you see it on the Internet and circulating around. But I believe it started back with this 1920s movie. She thinks she's making a sacrifice of her life for her brother. It's a really touching story. We, we know that the level of her sacrifice, the depth of, of her sacrifice speaks to the value of the gift that she's willing to give. The widow has these two coins. That's all she has to give. Jesus says that's all she had. That's all she had to live on. So that's why her gift is more than the massive amounts of coin of gold and silver that are being dropped into the bucket. What, how does this apply to us? There in our own lives, there may be some areas where we need to sacrifice. Jesus calls us to live lives of sacrifice. 
It may be sacrificing time. It may be sacrificing money. It may be sacrificing your ability. It may be sacrificing time with your spouse. I mean, sacrificing something else to spend time with your spouse. I don't want to get in trouble here. But, you, you know, we, to develop our relationships, to build our, our family relationships, our marital relationships, our church relationships, sometimes it requires a little bit of sacrifice. And Jesus is calling us to that. Maybe you need to give more of yourself to your job. Maybe you need to give more of yourself to your church. Maybe you need to give more of yourself to a stranger in need. It's just something to think about. The two copper coins were worth more than pounds of silver and gold because she gave out of her poverty. We tend to give out of our margin. I know I do. Whenever I give or I make an offering or I do something, it usually doesn't affect my life profoundly. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to eat. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have shelter. It just means that, okay, I might not have, you know, as much of some sort of luxury that I'd like to have. But rarely do we give out of our poverty. Rarely do we give in a way that is sacrificial. And Jesus is saying, give sacrificially. Number two, your life is the sum of your sacrifices. Whether we realize it or not, every, sac- every decision that we make, every choice that we make requires a sacrifice of something. Okay, track with me for just a minute. The word decide comes from the Latin word decidere, D-E-C-I-D-E-R-E. That word means to cut off, okay? Anytime you make a decision to do one thing, you are sacrificing the other option, okay? You're cutting off the other option. If you're making a decision to go left, you're cutting off, you're sacrificing your ability to turn right. Every choice we make in life requires a sacrifice of something. We, we, may, we, we may sacrifice, uh, if we want to get fit, we have that piece of, of apple pie sitting in front of us. We may say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my desire for that piece of apple pie so that I can, down the road, have a six-pack right here. And I tell my wife, I do have a six-pack right here. I like to keep it insulated, Okay. Every choice we make requires some kind of sacrifice. We're sacrificing something for something else. There was a great study back in the 60s in Stanford called the Bing Study. And this is a little guy who's participating in the Bing Study. And what you see right there on his plate is a marshmallow. And the way the Bing Study was conducted was they had all these little kids, and they offered them uh, three options. You can have a cracker, you can have a marshmallow, or you can have, I believe, a cookie. And so the, kid, the little kid would take one, and they would put it on a plate, and they would put, him, put the kid down in front of the, the table. And then the, the uh, researcher would say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I've got to leave the room for a few minutes. If you eat the mar- you can eat the marshmallow. But if you eat the marshmallow, you don't get any other marshmallows, okay? But if you don't eat the marshmallow until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. And then they would leave the room to see what the kids would do. This was a study in delayed gratification. Does the kid eat the marshmallow now, or does the kid wait to eat the marshmallow and get two marshmallows when the researcher comes back? And (laughs) um, what they found is that the children who learned to sacrifice their desire for that immediate gratification, when they studied these kids years later, they had uh, 
better academic performance. The, 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 the ones who were able to delay, uh, they had better academic performance. They had better behavioral, um, um, they were able to behave better uh, both in school, at home. They struggled less in stressful situations. Um, they had less trouble paying attention. They, they found it less difficult to maintain friendships. And this is something that was really interesting. The kids, the difference between the kids who could wait 15 minutes to eat the marshmallow and the kids who, couldn't only, who could only wait 30 seconds, there was a 210-point spread in their SAT scores. What they found is that when we learn to develop the ability to sacrifice one thing for another, then it benefits us all through our life, in every aspect of our life. When we learn to sacrifice, we are benefited in every area of our life. And this is the thing. These were little kids. We're mostly adults here. It's not too late to learn to sacrifice. It's not too late. And when I'm talking about sacrifice, I'm talking about across the gamut. It's not too late to learn to not participate in that sin or in that conduct or whatever it is. It's not too late to learn to give that up in order to to get something greater. You know, um, the interesting thing about this study is that the kids who were able to not eat the marshmallow, they were the kids who had learned to ignore the marshmallow while the researcher was out of the room. So the kids that would, like, like this little guy, he's staring at the marshmallow. They, they, they have videos of this. You can, I think you can see them on YouTube. But the, the kids, some of the kids would just stare at the marshmallow. Some of the kids would just sort of pet the marshmallow. Some of the kids would sit there and look at the marshmallow and pull their hair. But the kids that were able to not eat the marshmallow were the kids who would get up from the table, go away, and do something else. They would put the marshmallow out of their mind. What does that mean for us? I think that the Scripture teaches us, for example, to avoid temptation before we have to resist temptation. How many of you know that it is much easier to avoid temptation than it is to resist temptation? When the apple pie is right in front of you, it's very hard to resist. Uh, but if you just drive on by the apple pie store and don't even go in, you can resist. So basically what, what this study is teaching is that when we learn to sacrifice something we want now for something greater that we want down the road, it will benefit us in all aspects of our lives. Number three, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. This is a basic, inherent, universal law that applies across the board to your entire life. The greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward. I uh, have probably told, told you this. I, I know I have before. But I, my, my father, who was a pastor for many years, um, he had pastored large churches all around the country. Um, but at the age of 50, he felt called to go to Phoenix, Arizona and plant a church out of nowhere. He felt like that's what God wanted him to do. Um, and my mom reluctantly agreed. No, <laughs> she did agree. Um, he went at the age of 50. He gave up his job, his prestige, the people that knew him, a lot of his friends. And he moved to Phoenix, Arizona and planted a church in his home. And I've told you this before, but the, at our first service, there were seven people. 
five of us were family members. <laughs> and there was one other couple. God bless Rosella and Norval Wildman. And they're still at the church. Um, out of that sacrifice, and, and, and it was a tough sacrifice for our family, but out of that sacrifice, there now is not one, not two, but three really great churches in Phoenix, Arizona. There's the one that he planted, and then there were two churches that came and that planted out, out of that church. There are three great churches in Phoenix, Arizona, where people are learning the transforming power of the gospel. Their lives are being changed. They're growing. They're developing. And, and, the, and, the, and the gospel is being spread as a result of the sacrifice, at least in part, the sacrifice that my dad was willing to make. And I, I just honor that. I think about that, and it just blows my mind that he was willing to make that level of sacrifice at that age. When a lot of folks are starting to worry about, think about, you know, how do we get security? How do we? He said, you know what? I'm going to make the sacrifice. I feel like this is what we're called to do, and he did it. Um, in all areas of our life, the principle applies that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the reward in health and fitness and relationships in our family, you know. Jameson, my three-and-a-half-year-old, loves this thing on the computer, pbskids.org. It is, the games on that, on that website are the most mind-numbingly boring games that you can ever imagine. Jameson loves them. There'll be a game on there where it's like there's a picture of a horse, and the game is dress the horse, put a hat on him, put sunglasses on him, put a tie on him. And, you know, I'm not into, I'm not into the game, obviously, but every once in a while, Jameson will want me to come and sit down and participate with him. And I have found that when I participate in something that he likes, rather than trying to get him to participate in something that I like, he opens up to me. Like our relationship strengthens because I'm willing to make a little sacrifice of my precious time and sit down with my son and put a tie on a horse. The sacrifice and the reward are tied together. He gets so excited. He jumps up and down, claps his hands, gives me a hug because I'm willing to, to sacrifice a little bit of my time to do something for him. Um, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, it says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is the law of the harvest. This is the, this is the principle of the sacrifice and reward. Whatever you put into it, that's what you're going to get out of it. Uh, Luke 6.38, give and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Everything we do in life, we get out of it what we put into it. Everything in life. I want to close with this, back to this disguise. In this story, in this passage, we learn that, that the scribes, who are putting on an ostentatious, pretentious air of righteousness are actually wolves in sheep's clothing, disguised. We learn that the two little copper pennies that the woman puts into the box are actually a great treasure worth more than the silver and gold of all of the wealth that was put into the box because of the sacrifice. So a penny is disguised, uh, a treasure is disguised as a penny. And ultimately... A king is disguised as a servant. When Jesus is sitting there looking at this woman, and here's where the context of this story comes into play. When Jesus is sitting there looking at this woman, putting in these two coins, he is two days away from giving his life on the cross. 
when he looks at her and says, she gave everything, all she had to live on. He knows that in two days, he's going to give everything, all that he has to live on. He's going to give his entire life. And so here he is at the beginning of this passage saying, by the way, I'm king. And then at the end of the passage, he's saying, I am going to impoverish myself. I'm going to pour out everything I am. I'm going to become poor so that you can become rich. I'm going to become weak so that you can become strong. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die so that you can have life and that more abundantly. Jesus, the king, disguises himself as a servant for you and for me. And then he calls us as followers to do the same. We are royal blood. We are kings and priests. And we are asked to disguise ourselves as servants. And remember that everyone around us, everyone who needs us, is Jesus in disguise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage today.